happens when you uh, actually read the gospel accounts of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus is you realize um, this is not a Hallmark greeting card. It's not a peaceful story. Um, This passage begins with Joseph and his family becoming political refugees, and things only get worse from there. The heart of this story is about infanticide. But that's actually one of the things that makes the Bible so timeless for us today, because you read this story and you realize that for all of our technological advancement, for all of... um, for all of our um, scientific advancement, as, um, as progressive and as enlightened as we like to think that we are, we realize our world is not a peaceful place. Our world is a violent place. There's all kinds of hostility and division. Just look at our current political and cultural climate. It feels like bringing peace to this world feels so impossible. It feels so Sisyphean, so hopeless. Um, and on you know, one level that would make sense, therefore, that our modern non-religious culture would look at this passage and, and would look at the message of Christmas and the message of the gospel and say, if there's anything of value here at all, then it would be this message of peace. Let's not focus on whether or not Jesus was the Son of God or the Savior of sinners. In fact, that just makes the division worse. No. Let's just listen to Jesus' moral teachings. If we would just obey his moral teaching, if we would just follow his example of tolerance and love, then the world would finally be at peace. And on the surface, it would seem like this passage seems to support that view. Because here's Herod the king. He's a brutal, power-hungry, paranoid political leader. Um, he's uh, he's, uh, taking out any threat to his kingdom. He's wiping out little children. And it would be easy to look at this passage and think, aha, you see, Herod's the problem. Jesus came to confront the Herods of the world. And if we really want to find peace, then then the real problem is, how are we going to get rid of the Herods of the world? Jesus came to get rid of the Herods of the world, and that's how we find peace in this world. This passage is telling us that's only halfway true. It's true, but not in the way you think. We yearn for peace. The world is not at peace but we yearn for it. How does it happen? This passage is about a confrontation of kings, Jesus and Herod. So let's see three things briefly about this confrontation. We're going to see the king Jesus confronts. We're going to see the way he confronts that king. And lastly, we're going to see a little bit about why that confrontation works, okay? The king Jesus confronts, how he confronts that king, and why that confrontation works. First, the king Jesus confronts. A little bit before this in the story, some wise men come from the east uh, because they heard a prophecy that a great king was going to be born in the land of Judea. So they show up in Jerusalem asking, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? When Herod hears this, he freaks out. He doesn't want any rival kings around. So he comes up with a plot to kill Jesus. But when that plot backfires, Um, He gives orders to have every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two years old to be slaughtered. Now, like I just mentioned, it would be really easy for us to look at this story and then to start drawing parallels from Herod to, you know, pick your tyrant. Pick your enemy. It's not hard to do in our world. It's very easy for us to look around at the world and say things like, you know, the real problem in the world is these people over here or those people over there. Conservatives say that about progressives. Progressives say the same thing about the conservatives. The real problem with the world is fill in the blank. 
if we think that's the message of this passage, we're not hearing what it's really saying to us. What is Matthew really telling us? The gospel writer Matthew here, in this passage, what he's really saying is the real problem in this world is not the Herods out there. The real problem is the Herod inside our hearts. That's the real problem. In fact, you know, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is not just another political king. He's saying that Jesus is the king of the universe. So that means he's your king too. That means that it's not just Herod who resists him. We all resist him. Because we don't want someone else telling us how to live. We don't want um, to give up control over our lives. We, we don't want to do that. That has been true of every person throughout human history, especially us. Because we live in a time in which the dominant cultural narrative, the narrative that is exalted above every other narrative, is the freedom narrative. That means we say things like, everyone should be free to live however they want, as long as they don't hurt someone else. Or we say things like, everyone should be free to discover and express their authentic self. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you how to live or what to do. You have to be true to yourself. Those statements feel so obvious to us that we would never even dream of questioning them. And they're good statements. They're important statements. Those are statements that honor the dignity of every individual. And that's important. In fact, our culture's emphasis on the worth and the dignity of every human individual is a direct result of Christianity's influence in this world. There are lots of historians and philosophers who have pointed that out, and if you want to know more about that, catch me after the service and we can talk about it. But, but here's what this means. It means that there's a big difference between honoring the individual and enthroning the individual. This passage is telling us that inside every human heart, there's a Herod, and that Herod will go to any lengths to destroy any rival king. Now, listen, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then achieving peace in this world really is a matter of negotiating the interests of billions of little kings and queens all over the world. But if there is a God who created the world and who created you, then there really is only one king, Jesus. He's the king. And, and one of the ways that you know you're beginning to really take seriously who Jesus is and the claims of Christianity is when you're no longer indifferent to Jesus. In other words, if Jesus is, is just a, a human teacher, a great teacher, but merely a human teacher, then you really can take him or leave him. You can be indifferent to Jesus. But, but if you really begin to see who Jesus is, if he really is the cosmic king of the universe, and he is, then when you begin to wrestle with his true identity, that's always going to spark a riot in your heart. Look at this passage. You know, things were not great for Jewish people back then. They were under Roman occupation. They were economically and politically oppressed. Things were bad. But did you notice in this passage, as soon as Jesus shows up, things get worse. Herod goes on a killing spree. Have you ever noticed how angry people sometimes get at the suggestion that Jesus might be more than, um, than a merely human teacher? Here's what's good about that. At least it's taking the claims of Jesus seriously. At least it's recognizing the, the, the weightiness of the claims of who Jesus really is. And it's also recognizing that there really are only two responses that make any sense, that take the claim seriously. Either you bow down and worship Jesus or you try to destroy him. Either you crown him 
or you kill him. But those are the only two responses to Jesus that actually take him seriously. Now, before we move on, let me apply this really briefly. First, if you're a Christian, just please understand that that rebellion in our hearts never goes away. There's that, that Herod in your heart is never going to be entirely subdued. So we should always be on the lookout for all the different ways that our hearts are going to want to kick God off the throne of our lives. It's always happening, so we should be on the lookout. But secondly, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity or maybe you're skeptical, I want to encourage you to um, please recognize that you're never going to be entirely neutral and objective about this. We don't want to give up control over our lives. We don't want people telling us how to live. So if your sympathetic nervous system gets triggered by the suggestion that Jesus is the cosmic king of the universe, then I would encourage you to to keep exploring that, keep wrestling with that. Take that claim seriously and investigate it. And even more than that, I would encourage you to, to explore why that makes you so angry. That's the first thing we see. It's the king that Jesus confronts. But secondly, we see how Jesus confronts this king. And here's how it happens. You see it in the last verse. When Joseph brings his family back from Egypt to live in Nazareth, Matthew says that all of that happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, that's Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's what this means. Nazareth was nowheresville. It was so small, so obscure, so backwater that to anybody with any kind of social standing, um, it would have been a non-entity. And anyone who came from Nazareth would have been a non-entity as well. By the way, you see a really good picture of this in the Gospel of John. When the first disciples meet Jesus, one of them goes and tells his friend Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You, you can hear, I mean, his voice is almost dripping with disdain and dismissal. It's kind of like here in St. Louis, we have that question, where did you go to high school? I didn't grow up here, so I don't have a framework for knowing which schools are the ones you want to be from and which schools aren't. But I know this much, the sheer fact that that question even exists means that there are certain schools that would elicit the same reaction. What? You went where? Nazareth. Dismissal. Disdain. Now, think about this. When the God of the universe decided to enter history and become a human being, when he came as the king of kings, the king of creation, who's going to restore the world and bring perfect peace and justice to the world, how did this king come? Did he come as a rich and famous person? Did he come as a mighty general or a great political leader? No. He came as a nobody. He came as a non-entity. He came weak and despised and rejected. This is a king unlike any king the world has ever seen. In fact, it's almost impossible for us to imagine a king like this because when we think about the history of human kings in this world, we think Herod. We think tyrant. We think oppression and domination and subjugation. But when Jesus came weak and despised and rejected, he utterly shatters that paradigm. He shatters our categories. He's a king unlike any other king the world has ever seen. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Understand, this is not just Jesus being humble, okay? Like I mentioned, it's easy for us to say things like, you know, the real problem with the world is those people over there. And I'm not like those people. 
I'm, I'm one of the people who's trying to make the world a better place. I'm one of the people who, who's, I'm one of the good guys. I'm on the right side of history. And if God exists, then surely God is pleased with me. By the way, the religious version of that is, look, I go to church. I obey the Ten Commandments. I try to live a good life. Surely God is pleased with me. Do you know what that is? Both of those are ways, basically, of us wanting to be strong. We want to we be powerful. We want to have control over our lives. Those are ways of getting leverage with God. We say, look, God, I've been a good person. Now you owe me. But when Jesus came weak and despised and rejected, he, he turns that paradigm completely on its head. That This is showing us that Jesus, the king of the universe, did not come to the strong and the weak and the morally superior he came for the poor. He didn't come for the people who are being really moral, for people who have it all together. He came for people who don't have it all together and who know they don't have it all together. I'm wondering, you know, that many of you possibly grew up, like me, watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on TV. Um, there was a wonderful movie that came out about him this past year. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, apparently, I didn't know this, apparently he was overweight as a child, and so he experienced a fair share of ridicule and bullying when he was a kid. Now, you may know this, that Mr. Rogers was the voice of many of the puppets in the show, but one thing I didn't know, and they talked about in the movie, was that, um, and a lot of his best friends, and I think even his wife mentioned this, that there was one character, one of the puppets, that was basically Mr. Rogers' alter ego, Daniel Striped Tiger. Remember Daniel Striped Tiger, that little, meek, gentle little tiger with the high-pitched voice? Daniel Striped Tiger, they said that Fred Rogers revealed things about himself through Daniel Striped Tiger that he would never have told the world as Fred Rogers. That it was through that little puppet that, that Fred Rogers was able to share things with the world about his own weakness, his own insecurity, his own vulnerability. In fact, maybe the most poignant example of that was a, a duet that he sang with Lady Aberlin. Um, and they, as they show it, you can see the camera closing in on Daniel Striped Tiger, the uh, meek little puppet, and he's singing in his little high-pitched voice. He sings, Often I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not supposed to be scared, am I? Sometimes I cry and sometimes I shake, wondering, isn't it true that the strong never break? Haven't you ever felt like that? Friends, yes, there is a Herod in your heart that needs to be subdued. But isn't there also a Daniel striped tiger that needs to be healed? The voluntary weakness of Jesus makes it safe for you to be honest about your own weaknesses and your own vulnerabilities. Isn't it hard always having to act like we have it all together? especially with social media in our lives. The, the wonderful, amazing thing about the gospel is that it shows us a king. It shows us Jesus, a king who came not to, to, to be for the strong and the powerful and the morally superior. It shows us a king who came for the weak and the poor and the morally compromised, people like me and people like you. And that leads us to our last point. We've seen the king Jesus confronts. It's you and it's me. And we've seen the way Jesus confronts this king. It's by coming weak and vulnerable in order to help us um, be honest about our own weaknesses too. But lastly, why does this confrontation work? Because here's the question. Why did Jesus even need to come at all? Why did God need to become a human being, come to earth and, and save us? 
The answer is because we couldn't do it ourselves. So look at verse 15. When Joseph brings his family back from Egypt, the gospel writer Matthew says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Here's what's so curious about this. Um, that's a quotation from the prophet Hosea, but it's not a prophecy. It's actually referring back to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of how God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And throughout that book, God calls Israel, my son. So when God says, out of Egypt, I called my son, it's a way of referring back to Exodus, back to how God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt. And he told them, I've saved you. Now I want you to love me, serve me, obey me, and show the rest of the world who I am and what I'm like. The problem is Israel failed to be the son that God had called them to be, and they failed miserably. <laughs> and guess what? You and I fail too. We all fail. The, one of the main messages of the whole Bible is that we're all Israel. We're all Herod. We're all disobedient children. We're all rebel kings. That's one of the main messages of the whole Bible. And that means that you know, when we think about the world, when we think about the state of our world, uh, when we think about peace in this world, um, that means that the real question is this. The real problem is not, how is God um, supposed to get rid of the Herods of the world? The real problem is, how is God supposed to get rid of the Herods of the world without getting rid of you and me? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Do you now realize what Matthew is telling us? He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel, the true son that Israel failed to be. That's what he's telling us here. In other words, listen, what do you think of the message of the Bible? What do you think it really is, the message of the Bible? A lot of times people say the message of the Bible, well, it's a book of instruction, moral instruction. God says, if you're a good person, here's how I want you to live. Do a good job, and I will love you. Uh, Matthew is telling us that's only half an answer. It's only half the answer. It, he's being way more subversive with us about that. The real message of the Bible is this. If Jesus came to be yet another moral example, yet another moral teacher, let me ask you a question. How does that help you? For instance, if you're trying to do something really difficult, but you find it impossible, like trying to walk a tightrope, you know how it's supposed to be done. You just can't do it. Listen, does it help you for someone else to come along and say, you're doing it all wrong. Here, let me show you how. Does that free you? Does that encourage you? No, it crushes you. There has been no shortage of moral instruction, no shortage of moral examples before Jesus arrived. Is one more example going to really help us? And especially Jesus, as if, you know, living a good life wasn't already difficult enough. Jesus takes it into nosebleed territory. Forget about Buddha. Forget about Socrates. Forget about Confucius. Just be like Jesus? Come on. If, if the real message of the Bible is that Jesus is a moral example and that we just have to be like Jesus, we're lost. That is why it is so important for us to understand what Matthew is really telling us in this passage. He's saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Do you realize he's talking about Jesus? That's what he's really saying here. The message of the Bible is not, here's how I want you to live. Do a good job, and I will love you. <laughs> the message of the Bible is, here's how I want you to live. You'll never be able to do it. But here's someone who can and who did for you 
It's Jesus. He fulfills everything in the Bible. Every storyline finds its fulfillment in him. That means that Jesus is the true, obedient Adam the first Adam failed to be. Or that Jesus is the true, faithful Abraham the first Abraham failed to be. Or that Jesus is the true, righteous King David the first King David failed to be. Don't you see? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus Christ is not just yet another demand on your life that you be obedient and faithful and righteous. He's the one who's the fulfillment of everything that you are supposed to be but can't. Now, listen, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that that Jesus doesn't set an example for us. Does he give us an example of how to live? Of course he does. But Jesus can never be your example until and unless he is first and foremost your Savior, your representative, your substitute. And the place he did that supremely was on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus is the true obedient one who is counted a rebel so that rebels like you and me could be counted obedient. Jesus is the true Son of God who was scorned and rejected by the Father so that ragamuffins like you and me could be welcomed and lavished with love. Jesus is the true King of the universe who was stripped of glory so that rebel king and queens like you and me could be clothed with righteousness. It doesn't belong to us. It's given to us by grace. When you see the king of the universe, the true king, the God of creation, when you see him who came not to destroy you, but to die for you, to die helpless and weak, despised and rejected, to be stripped naked, tortured and nailed, broken and bleeding to a cross, when you see the king of the universe doing that for you, Oh my word, friends, not only does that subdue the Herod in your hearts, it also heals the Daniel striped tiger. But the only way it can do that is if you allow it to subdue the Herod in your heart. In other words, if you allow yourself to be confronted by the grace of Jesus Christ, you know what grace really is? It cuts both ways. Grace means that you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. But if that's true, grace also means, by definition, that you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. Have you allowed your heart to be confronted by the grace of Jesus Christ? Your rebellious heart, that's where the peace really begins. If Jesus is just an example to you, that will crush you. But if you allow him to be the Savior who is crushed for you, that will heal you. That will liberate you. That will turn you into a vehicle of the same liberating, healing, gracious peace to the world around you. And the world desperately needs it right now, doesn't it? Let's pray.